Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. We, uh, yeah, in Shofar Joburg, we talk about um, making disciple makers, and the way we do it is uh, we learn to live the gospel, love the people, and obey the Spirit. So, three of the things that we really value, and, and we believe that if we bring these three things together in, uh, with one another, then inevitably discipleship happens and revival happens. And th- those three things are gospel, people, and spirit. Wherever you bring the gospel, the people, and the spirit together, where those overlap, you get revival, true revival. Uh, you get a lot of false revivals, and unfortunately there have been a lot of false revivals throughout history. And that's often when you've just brought sort of two, one or two of the three together. When you've maybe brought people and spirit together without gospel. Or, you know, people and gospel together without spirit. Or something like that. But um, if you want true revival, you need um, the gospel based on the word of God. People, as they are, and uh, the spirit of God to have freedom. And then true revival happens. And, and this, this evening I just want to speak about uh, one of those elements. I just want to highlight one, and, and that's gospel. So I'm going to be sharing a little bit from um, Galatians chapter 1 about the, about the gospel. And uh, I want to encourage you to open up your hearts to, to um, you know, just receive it, uh, to receive it and to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart uh, about what's on His heart. Uh, that's a picture of my family. I'm the, the cream and my wife is the, is the coffee. <laughs> and we made nice little cappuccinos. And, um, you know, I like to think of the fact that uh, um, God brought us together for, for a reason and uh, we visually put on display what the gospel accomplishes or part of what the gospel accomplishes. Because what the gospel accomplishes, it brings people together from all kinds of different backgrounds and, um, you know, cultures and um, ethnic groups and socioeconomic classes and whatever. And the gospel being in Christ, you know, that unity in Christ, the oneness that it creates between us, this, that, that salvation creates, overpowers all the differences and makes the differences not go away, but makes them non-dividing differences. Because what binds us together in the gospel is stronger than what would separate us in the natural. Uh, and I think that's very powerful. Um, okay, so Galatians 1. Let me just read the first couple of verses of Galatians 1. Uh, <clears throat> it says, Paul, an apostle, not, of, not from men, nor through uh, man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who were with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins and delivered us uh, to deliver us from the, uh, the present evil age, according to the will of God, uh, the Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were try, still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I, would have, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that I preached, uh, that was preached by me, is not man's gospel. So, um, first thing I want you to notice about uh, what it says here, um, what Paul's saying about the gospel, is he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, now turning to a different gospel. Not that they, uh, there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. So th there isn't another one, but there are some who trouble you and distort the gospel of Christ. So the first thing I want you to notice about this gospel is that it's the gospel of Christ. It's not a gospel, it's the gospel. Now, it's the, the, the thing about the gospel is it's singular and it's unique. There's only one gospel. There's only one good news. There aren't many, there, there are, in a sense, he's saying, because he seems to be contradicting himself. He says, uh, you're turning to a different gospel, but then he, then he says, he seems to contradict himself, but he says, there isn't really another gospel. So is there a different gospel or isn't there? You know, he seems to be contradicting himself. Um, there are, there are, and I, th I think what he means, and I'll, I'll get deeper into that in a moment, is that there are all kinds of different messages that claim to be gospels, but they're not really gospels at all. They claim to be other Gospels, but they're not Gospels at all. They're not good news at all. They cannot save at all. There's only one Gospel that is the Gospel. Uh, I remember when, when I was at school, we often used to have um, you know, fundraisers. And one of the things that um, they'd have at the fundraiser was this big jar of toffees. And then you could buy a ticket for five rand or ten rand or whatever. And then everyone would get it chance to guess how many toffees are in the jar and whoever guessed the right amount or got the closest to the right amount would get the whole jar of toffees sort of a raffle right um now to the question how many toffees are in the jar how many wrong answers are there many yeah it's theoretically infinite but you know if you can sort of roughly estimate then you know you'd, you'd probably be limited to a few hundred wrong answers but but theoretically infinite amount there are many not wrong answers that's the point how many right answers are there to the question how many toffees are in a jar only one only one and with truth it works that way there's only one right answer and and, and, our, uh, and, and many wrong answers and, and the, the reality is our our world doesn't like that that's not comfortable, that's not politically correct, that's not acceptable, that's not tolerant, that's not fill in the blanks. Our world doesn't like that answer, the fact that there's only one right answer. Okay? And, and, and then, you know, uh, people will often say things like, oh, you know, that's so narrow. That's so, you know, uh, narrow-minded to think that there's only one right answer. But the, the reality is there is only one right answer. Okay? Um, you know, when, um, when, when, the, 
when an aeroplane is coming into land and, and, and the, you know, the instruments are broken, they ask the tower, how, how far am I off the ground? There's only one right answer, you know? You, you, you know, if you're 500 meters off the ground and the tower tells you 200 meters off the ground, then you're going to come in too fast and you're going to crash. And the right answer actually matters, okay? So, and, 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 and Paul see, he seems to think it's the same, yeah, with spiritual things and with the gospel. There's one gospel there's one right answer. Um, now, the, the one gospel has other gospels. It says, you know, so you're turning from the gospel to a different gospel. And then it says that there is, not that there is another. What, what he literally says in the Greek is, um, he says, I'm astonished that you're turning so quickly to a heteros gospel. A different gospel, and, and then he says, not that there is another, but the word for another that he uses there is alos. So you get two words for another in, in Greek. You get alos, which is another of the same kind, and heteros, which is another of a different kind. Like heterosexual, you know, men and women are different, okay? Fundamentally different, not just superficially different. And what Paul is saying is you're turning to a heteros gospel. You're turning to a gospel of a different kind. It is another gospel, but it's, it's a gospel of a different kind. It's not even of the same kind. And, and he even repeats that in the next verse when he says in verse 7, not that there is another, not that it is another of the same kind, because there isn't another of the same kind. When it comes to the gospel, there's just one of its kind. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a one-of-a-kind gospel. It's a one-of-a-kind good news. There's no other good news like it. And the reality is, if you look at <clears throat> every other religion, all other religions, if you look at them carefully, they share this in common. They are all man's way of getting to God, whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's way of getting to man. That's why it says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only gospel that is the gospel of grace, not of works. If all other gospels, if all other religions are ultimately man's way of getting to God, they are, they are, they are religions of work, earning your way towards God, doing enough to earn the right to be acceptable to God. Whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ... It's by the grace of Christ and in the grace of Christ that we are called. In other words, it's not based on our performance that we get to God, but it's based on Jesus' performance that God gets to us. And that's a big difference. In all other religions, man can accomplish it. The difference between all other religions, all other gospels, and this gospel is that, this gospel says no man cannot accomplish it. Only God himself can accomplish it. And that's why it's in the grace of Christ. <clears throat> now, Paul also does, he doesn't only say that the gospel is singular, that it's unique. He also says that the gospel is serious business. Um, you don't say it in so many words, but, but indirectly, you can, well, directly and indirectly you can see it. The first thing I want you to notice, if you've read any of Paul's letters, um, and he's wrote more documents, contributed more documents to the New Testament than anyone else, quite a few letters. And he has a 
sort of a standard methodology that he has in his letters. You know, he'll, he'll introduce himself, Paul, and the people with him, um, and maybe he'll say a little bit about something about himself, you know, Apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me actually just go to the previous slide, because it's on there. Apostle of Jesus Christ, etc. Um, and then the brothers who were with me, and then to the churches of Galatia, or the churches of Corinth, the church of Corinth, or, or whoever else. Uh, and then he'll sort of have a blessing, grace, and peace to you from God the Father. Uh, and then what he always does is he goes over into a prayer or a thanksgiving or a blessing. So I thank my God for you every time I remember you in my prayers. Or, you know, something similar to that. Where's that thanksgiving in Galatians? It's not there. <laughs> he skips it. Now, now, I just want you to notice that in every single one, Without exception of Paul's other letters, it's there. It was a standard letter-writing procedure. It was good manners and good form <laughs> to include this thanksgiving or this prayer. And Paul just keeps it here. What does that tell you about what's going on in Paul's mind and heart? He's upset. He's angry. He's hot under the collar with these Galatians. He's dispensing of the niceties, and he's just saying, listen, I'm astonished that you're so quickly turning away from the one who called you by in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. I mean, what's going on with you? You know, you can sort of, I want you to hear the tone of his voice. He's correcting them. He's scolding them a bit. You know, like a father who's really concerned about the children that he loves. He's, 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 he's addressing them in that tone of voice. In other words, he's saying, this is serious business. You know, I, I mean, if you go and read the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, I mean, there is so much wrong in that church. I mean, you know, they make us look good. <laughs> I'm just messing with you, man. <laughs> but I mean, there's so much wrong in that church. I mean, there's divisions. There's infighting. There's pride. There's the abuse of the gifts. There's... I mean, you name it. I mean, they, they, they even have this thing where some of them say the resurrection has already taken place and we're experiencing heaven on earth and, you know, all kinds of funny stuff. But even with them, Paul prays a prayer of blessing over them. But when in the churches to the Galatians, people start messing with the gospel, Paul has no thanksgiving, he has no blessing. He just climbs into them and says, listen, yeah, this is serious business. This is unacceptable. This causes me to dispense with the niceties. Can you see how seriously Paul is taking this? That's, that's sort of implicit, based on what the letter doesn't say. But listen to what it does say in um, verse 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be a curse. The word there is anathema. Let them be anathema. Let them be cursed. Let the curse of God be upon them. Let them be eternally condemned. And, and, and he's so serious about this, he repeats it in the next verse. He says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let it be anathema. Let God's curse be upon him. Let him be eternally condemned. Can you see how serious Paul is taking this? You know, you, in other words, what he's saying is, you can mess with many things, but you don't mess with the gospel. Um, you know, as a, as a church movement, we're still very young, and um, 
We only started in 92. And we're still sort of working through our doctrine. And one of the things that we've had to figure out is there are, you know, open-hand doctrines and closed-hand doctrines. In other words, some doctrines that are, you can disagree on them, and it's fine to disagree on them. But then there are other closed-hand doctrines that you, you just cannot disagree on them. And what Paul is saying is the gospel is in the closed-hand. You, you cannot afford to get that wrong. That is how serious it is. And, and, and that leads me to, to, to my next point. In other words, according to Paul, the gospel is central. It's not peripheral. It's not by the way. It's not an extra added nicety. It is central to what Christianity is. And, and that is the centrality, um, the, the central gospel that was recovered, for instance, in the Reformation. Throughout the Dark Ages, the, the gospel had essentially been lost, and the church had been running on works righteousness. And people were buying indulgences and the forgiveness of sins. You know, with the, you know, little poems like, you know, winner, um, you know, there was this whole idea of purgatory, you know, and, you know, if your children die without being baptized or something like that, then they're going to end up in purgatory or your family members could be in purgatory, but then you can bail them out, literally, you know, buy, buy them out of purgatory. When a coin in the, off, uh, in the, in the, in the um, coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> so, so you could literally buy salvation, according to that theology. And, and the whole idea that the gospel of the gospel of grace and that salvation is by grace alone through what Christ did, that we cannot pay our way, either by good works or by money, but that only what Jesus did can pay for us to, get, uh, to, to be saved, uh, can ransom us. Th that was lost. And, and, and we all know, we have at least some idea of in the dark ages, what, why it's called the dark ages was because the church was in such a terrible state. It had lost the gospel. And then guys like Martin Luther and, and the other reformers came. And Luther said that um, the central tenant of Christianity is the gospel. And what they recovered, or at least tried to recover in the Reformation, was the gospel. Because if that is lost, then everything is lost. The gospel is central. But, but here's the thing, according to Paul. The gospel is not just central to getting into the kingdom. It's central to getting on in the kingdom. It's not just central to justification. It's central to sanctification. It's not just central to, you know, being born again. It's central to becoming more like Jesus. Okay? So, so for instance, he'll say stuff like, you know, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Um, and he gave himself um, for, in the place of, on behalf of our sins. That's literally what it says in the Greek. Um, in other words, our sins d deserved a certain punishment, and he, but he gave himself and his life instead of it, instead of our of our lives so that we can be saved from the present evil age and then he'll say stuff in chapter 2 verse 14 like Peter was not walking in line with the truth of the gospel in other words the whole of the Christian life is walking in line with the truth of the gospel so the gospel is the way in and the way on it's central to everything in Christianity and another thing that he says here that's, that's um, quite interesting is that the gospel is set uh, in Scripture. In other words, he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven comes and preaches a different gospel, let him be anathema. So he's saying, 
the authority doesn't lie in me. Because if, even if I come and preach a different gospel, don't accept it. Or even an angel from heaven comes to preach a different gospel, don't accept it. Where does the authority lie? In the gospel itself. Where is that gospel recorded for us? In scripture, in the New Testament. Later on, when in chapter 3, when he talks about the, continues to talk, because the whole letter is about the gospel, because um, that's a thing that's being attacked, uh, is the gospel. So, later on he says, the scriptures preached the gospel before and to Abraham, saying that all nations will be blessed through him. And words, the gospels are contained not only in the gospel preaching of the apostles recorded in the New Testament, but in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Now it's the Bible. So, so, where do we find out what the gospel is? In scripture, in the Old and the New Testament. That tells us what the gospel is. Now, here's why that's important. I'm going to try and develop this uh, a bit more. How much time do I have? Um, here's why this is important. Just like Paul's audience was facing another gospel, which was another one of a different kind, so we are facing other gospels. Okay? For instance, Mormonism is another gospel. Okay? But it's a gospel that we're in South Africa are not facing so much. It's more people in America that's facing that. But a gospel that we are facing, which is another gospel, is, for instance, the so-called prosperity gospel. Now, some of you are like, you know, what's that? Or, I thought God does want us to prosper. Okay, <laughs> I'll try and explain a little bit about what that is. But it literally is another gospel. Okay? It's a different gospel. It's similar, very similar, in fact, scarily similar to the gospel that Paul is opposing here in the letter to the Galatians. So much so that there are a lot of the things that he says about this gospel that are also applicable to the prosperity gospel. Okay? Here's the problem. It's another gospel. It's a distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not taking, it's not taking something completely different and replacing the gospel of Jesus Christ with it. Okay? It's distorting. What do you do when you distort something, when you pervert something? You don't replace it. You just take it and you twist it. You change it. Now, here's the question. How much can you afford to change the gospel before it ceases to be the gospel? According to Paul, not much. <laughs> now, it's another gospel. And it's, it's, it's different, but it's also the same. In, in a sense, you can also call it the gospel. It's just taking the truth of Jesus Christ uh, and twisting it, perverting it, distorting it, changing it slightly. Now, so much so, it's, it's such a slight change that many of these Christians in the churches of Galatia weren't even recognizing the change. C can you see that? That's why Paul has to write to them. He's writing to Christians. He says, to the churches in Galatia. He says, you guys are not noticing this, but, but what you're hearing is not the gospel. It's another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. It's a perversion of the truth. It's a twisting of the truth so that it has changed from being the true gospel to being a false gospel. But it's subtle enough so that you're not noticing it. And the reality is, just like the Christians in Galatia didn't... Let me ask you the, this question. If you want to, I mean, people often counterfeit money. You know, they'll take, 
100 or 200 rand or, or dollar bills or whatever, and they counterfeit them. They make copies, basically, of them. You know, print your own money. Who do you think, how do you think people recognize the counterfeit? By knowing the original well. The better you know the original, the better you can recognize the counterfeit. So if you know a hundred rand note very well, and you know it's, you know, distinguishing marks, then you'll be able to recognize a counterfeit. And clearly that Christians in Galatia didn't know the original well enough to recognize the counterfeit. And the reality is, often we as Christians, because we have not, as the church, focused enough on the gospel, we don't know the original well enough to recognize the counterfeit. And we accept the counterfeit as though it's original. But what happens, in when, you tr what happens when you try and cash in a counterfeit? What, what happens when you take a counterfeit note and you, and you take it to the bank and you want to cash it in? It's rejected. And so many people on Judgment Day are going to come with their counterfeit gospel and they're going to try and metaphorically cash it in. And the bank is going to say, sorry, it's not the real deal. It's a counterfeit. It looks similar. If you've ever seen a counterfeit note, it looks very similar to the original, but it's not the original. And, and, and those are the people where Jesus is going to say, you know, you say to me, Lord, Lord, but depart from me because I never knew you. You practice lawlessness. <clears throat> now, here's the thing. The devil's not stupid. How much, how much poison do you think is in rat poison? What percentage? Yeah, just a little bit, not that much. If it was 100% poison, what would the rat do? <laughs> Smell it and say, uh-uh. This doesn't smell right. This smells dangerous. But rat poison contains more than 95% good nutritious food that is actually healthy for rats. Why? Because then rats won't recognize it as poison. So they smell it, it smells right, they eat it, they die. And the devil's clever. If he knows, if, if, he, if he takes the gospel and changes it so that it's unrecognizable, so that it doesn't even look like a counterfeit, then no one's going to fall for it. He has to keep it looking similar, but change it enough so it's not the real thing anymore. In other words, he just has to put in that less than 5% arsenic or cyanide or whatever poison they, they use, and it becomes deadly. So, you know, for instance, you know, one of the big differences with, one, one of the, seemingly small but actually big shifts with the prosperity gospel is whereas the true gospel is God-centered, the prosperity gospel is man-centered. Okay, many different ways. Um, firstly, so, so in other words, let, let, me, let me put it very blatantly. Okay, one of the problems with the prosperity gospel is it's idolatry. Boom. Okay. <laughs> now, you're, now you're saying, but hang on, you know, isn't idolatry when you carve out a, a little image for yourself, you know, from wood and you cover it in gold and silver or whatever and you fall down and worship it? Yes, that is idolatry. And yes, you do still get that form of idolatry. But that's not the only form of idolatry that you get. Right? I mean, we know that. We know that someone who, I mean, you can see when someone idolizes money or their job because they become workaholics, they become slaves to it. And they 
work for it. And that's the most, it becomes all-consuming to them. And, and, and they work for it so hard that they neglect and destroy everything else in their lives. And, you know, in order to get this God, this idol. Now, money is not a little image. It's something more abstract. But it's still, it's still uh, an idol. Let me, let me just read you a, a, one or two quotes about idolatry that I think you'll find helpful. Um, it says, idolatry is not so much wanting bad things as it is turning good things into ultimate things. Hmm. This means anything can become an idol, including good things, such as career, family, achievement, independence, a political cause, material possessions, certain people, uh, independence upon you, power and influence, physical attractiveness, romance, human approval, financial security, your place in a particular social circle or institution. None of those things are bad per se, but if you make those good things ultimate things that become idols as much as a wooden image that you fall down and worship. C.S. Lewis says, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. An idol, Keller continues, is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity. Okay, so, here's the thing. How does the prosperity gospel do that? The prosperity gospel makes God a means to an end. Okay, and when God is a means to an end rather than the end himself, then he is not God. If God is a means to an end, then whatever that end is, is your true God. If you say, for instance, God, I'll serve you as long as you give me this, then whatever this is, is your God. God, I'll serve you as long as you save my children. Then actually your children are your God. God, I'll serve you if you give me that spouse I want. Then that spouse you want is your God. God, I'll serve you as long as you give me this promotion. So, so, you know, think, what are the things that if God didn't give them to you would tempt you to walk away from God? If there is any such thing, then that thing is an idol. Okay? In the prosperity gospel, it's health, wealth, and prosperity. Well, let's boil it down to what it really is, comfort. Because what the prosperity gospel is, is it's the American dream that has been Christianized. I want health, wealth, and prosperity so that I can be comfortable. Because what I really want from life is comfort. And God becomes a means to an end, and that end is my comfort. So how do you recognize the prosperity gospel? Well, there are a few ways in which you recognize it. One of the ways is it has no recognition of the, the normalcy and the necessity of suffering in the Christian life. Has that shocked you? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to say this in a way that, let me just be brutally honest with us. The, the, the prosperity gospel since the 60s, since uh, E.W. Kenyon, uh, Kenyon, Kenneth Hagen, and those guys started the prosperity gospel, it has infiltrated and leavened the, the charis Pentecostal charismatic church to such an extent that it's become part of our culture. 
So I think it's safe to say that all of us are going to struggle with certain aspects of that and have been contaminated by certain aspects of that. Okay? So if we are standing before the burning bush and allowing God to reveal himself to us as the real God in humility, then we must be humble enough to say, where, has I, where have I been contaminated by this? Okay? Because here's the, here's, the, here's the truth. None of us want to suffer. All of us want to be comfortable. I mean, that's why the prosperity gospel is so popular. Otherwise, <laughs> no one would listen to it. It's a nice, itchy ear gospel. It tells us exactly what we want to hear. That God exists for our pleasure and our comfort. And we can use Him as a means to an end to get what we want. And um, Lauren was saying something quite profound. I hope you, you, you heard it. She says that the base of our theology is the goodness of God. But you know what the prosperity gospel does with that? It defines goodness in such a way that it excludes all suffering, all discomfort, all pain. It says, if God is good, he'll remove all discomfort from you. If God is good, he'll remove all pain from you. If God is good, he'll remove all suffering from you. Now, does that sound right to you? We all know in our hearts it's not right. I mean... So much so, I mean, <laughs> how can a gospel that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who gave himself to suffer for our, to save us, to rescue us from this evil age, how can a, a, a Christian life that is based on that gospel exclude the very suffering that made that gospel good news? Discipleship is decidedly a departure from the path of least resistance. When you become a disciple, you depart completely from the path of least resistance, and you go on a path that is, to be very honest, quite difficult, not comfortable, not always pleasant, not always nice. Okay? That's why so many people depart from the faith. That's why so many people leave the faith. Because they were told, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Just accept Jesus into your life and he'll make your life better. <laughs> and, and then they do. <laughs> and, they, and they're like, whoa, God has a wonderful plan for my life. I also have a wonderful plan for my life. And if I can take God's wonderful plan for my life and my wonderful plan for my life and put them together, it's going to be just great. And I'm never going to suffer again. I'm never going to express discomfort or pain or anything bad ever again. This is wonderful. And then they accept, <laughs> amen, preach it, brother. And then they accept this gospel. And anyone who's been walking with Jesus for any short amount of time knows that you're going to suffer a bit. It's not always going to be easy. It's going to be sometimes hard. It's going to be worth it. By all means, it's worth it. But it's not always easy. It's not always comfortable. Sometimes there is suffering. Okay? And then people are like, I didn't sign up for this. What's, what's this discomfort? What's this pain? What's this suffering? What's this, you know, why isn't it always easy? You know, no one told me that it was going to, I thought it was just going to, Jesus was going to make my life better. He seems to be making my life worse. I have more opposition. 
and then people turn away from the faith. Okay? Um, so the prosperity gospel is um, idolatry. It, uh, let me just read it for you in the text. Um, it says um, that the, the true gospel is according to, according to the will of God and for the glory of God. Okay, it's according to the will of God and for the glory of God, where the prosperity gospel is according to the will of man and for the glory of man. And it assumes that God's will, God's perfect divine will, is the same as our sinful human wills. God wants for us what we want for ourselves, which is comfort. That's the assumption. Okay? Um, it ends up making God a means to an end, uh, being man-centered rather than God-centered, and... Um, glorifying man and flattering man rather than glorifying God. One of the ways in which, and I don't have time, I wish I had more time to go into this, but I don't. So let me just sort of summarize it to you. One of the ways in which this is presented in the prosperity gospel, it says we are little gods. Okay? Now some of you are saying, but hang on, doesn't scripture say that? Yes, it does. <laughs> in fact, in the Old and the New Testament, Jesus in fact quotes the psalm in the Old Testament that says, are you not gods? Okay? But here's, once again, the twist, because it's another gospel. So it, just, it doesn't take it and completely change it. It just takes it and redefines things in Scripture. So here's how it redefines it. Whereas we are little gods in the sense that we are made in the image of God, genuinely, really made in the image of God. But why are we made in the image of God? To, by glor to glorify Him, by representing Him. Okay? The prosperity gospel twists it and, says, and says we are made in the image of God. We are little gods, not to represent God, but to replace God. In other words, it defines us as gods in such a way that we no longer need God. So one way in which it will do this is, by, for instance, it says, uh, Scripture says about God, God is the God who speaks those things that are not as though they were. In other words, God creates everything out of nothing. He's the creator. He creates everything out of nothing. So the prosperity gospel will say, okay, if we are little gods, then we can also speak those things that are not as though they were. We can also create like God creates. You're no longer defining gods in the sense of representing God. You've now gone over to replacing God, defining it in such a way that we replace God and we no longer need Him. And hence the whole emphasis on... Um, Okay, what, what do I want? I can have whatever I want. If I just believe it, name it, claim it, and frame it. That's one of the sort of stereotypical, you know, pejorative, um, what shall I call it, labels put on the prosperity gospel. Now, it takes what should glorify God and it makes it glorify man. It takes what should be centered on God and it centers on man. And it takes what should focus on what God has done and is doing and makes it on what we do and we can do, mostly. Okay? Um, then another way in which you see um, the, the, the prosperity gospel, I, I, I mentioned that the gospel is set in Scripture. It's the gospel that Paul and them preached as captured in the New Testament, and as derived from the Old Testament. If you go and look at the prosperity gospel, um, you know, people who preach it don't take Scripture seriously. And now, once again, they read Scripture, 
And they'll take ideas from Scripture, but they'll invest it with what they want it to mean instead of what Scripture means by it. Um, and I've seen this over and over again. And, and that's why you know, I'm such a stickler, for instance, for Scripture and interpreting Scripture correctly. You know, um, Martin Luther and them had the same problem when they had to recover the gospel out of the Dark Ages. And Luther said something very profound. He said, we must not bend Scripture, but allow it to bend us and give it the honor of being better than we can make it. And I've, I've read quite a few books. Now, now, now here, I'm, I must be honest, I'm in, I'm in a bit of a, you know, it feels sometimes to me like I'm caught between a rock, or it has in the past felt to me like I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. <clears throat> because on the one hand, um, there are a lot of things that people in the prosperity gospel movement say that I agree with. But then there are also a lot of things that I don't agree with. And on the other hand, there are a lot of people who criticize the prosperity gospel that I don't agree with. You know, and I'm thinking specifically in the area of, of the gifts. You know, there are many guys who deny the continuation of the gifts who criticize the prosperity gospel. Okay? Now, I am unashamedly charismatic. I believe that in the continuation of the gifts. I don't believe the gifts have ceased. In fact, I know that I've not only... Do I believe it based on Scripture? But I've experienced it, and I experience it on a regular basis. So, you know, some people th have thought that there are the two camps, you know, the prosperity gospel guys who accept the gifts, and then the non-prosperity gospel guys who reject the gifts. That's not true at all. I reject the prosperity gospel, but I accept the gifts. Okay? Um, sorry, where was I? Me too. <laughs> now I've lost my, lost my point. Um, what was I talking about? <laughs> oh, um, okay, when well, I was talking about scripture and, and about, about how, um, how you can misinterpret scripture. Um, in other words, Luther said we mustn't bend scripture but allow it to bend us and give it the honor of being better than we can make it. Okay, so, you know, So often we want to read Scripture in a way that it says what we want it to say. You know, we have those itchy ears. I mean, when, when we read the Scripture about, you know, the, in Second Timothy about piling up teachers, you know, to scratch the itchy ears, we think about other people. But the reality is all of us are sometimes tempted with itchy ears. There are certain things we want to hear. There are certain things we want Scripture to say. Um, and all of us ultimately, in our fallen humanness, want the comfort that the prosperity gospel holds out. The American dream or whatever you want to call it um, and 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 it's so easy for us to want to read it into scripture and here's the problem the gospel that you accept is not only the truth you look at it's ultimately the truth you look through it becomes your worldview you know what a worldview is it's the lens through which you interpret the world and interact with it someone once said that a worldview is like the lens of your eye you don't see it but you see everything else through it and that's the problem. Eventually, the gospel you accept becomes this lens and you read everything else through it, right? And you read into Scripture what you want it to say. Okay? Now, here's, here's the crux of the matter. Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the, in the grace of Christ. And are turning to a different gospel, which is not that there is another. 
the prosperity gospel makes even faith, which is supposed to be by which, you know, by grace, by what we receive, what Jesus did for us, turns that into a work. In other words, faith is redefined as a self-generated spiritual force that accomplishes what we wanted to accomplish. Let me, let me, let me give you the, the good example. Um, if you think about the mountain that Jesus talks about, you'll say to this mountain, be moved and cast into the sea. Okay? And it will be done for you. And he says, if you believe and do not doubt, it will be done for you. Now, people in the prosperity gospel say, well, there's you. And if you have faith, your faith will move the mountain. But they forget to read the very first verse of that portion where Jesus is talking. He says, have faith in God. Okay? So here's how real faith looks. Here's God. Your faith is in God, and God moves the mountain. Can you see what the prosperity gospel has done by making faith a force? You know, like, like in you know, the Star Wars, you know, the force be with you. Like your faith is a force that actually accomplishes things. Okay? It's, it's removed God as the middleman. And, and literally, this is what it says. Your faith accomplishes it. What does it do? It turns faith into a work. It turns faith into something we do. It turns faith into something we accomplish. It's, in other words, faith are no longer empty hands that we receive with. They are powerful hands that we create with. We move mountains with. We do all kinds of stuff with. And God is, in a sense, cut out of the, the picture. Now, here's the thing. We know that if it only depends on us, we're in trouble. In other words, how strong does your faith need to be in order to save you? If your faith saves you, how much faith do you have to have in order to be saved? How do you know you have enough faith to be saved? You never know. If faith is a work, then it's no longer by grace. Okay? And, and the good news of Jesus Christ is it doesn't depend on our work. Because none of our work would be good enough. That's why it's good news, not good advice. Because it's good news about what Jesus did to save us, not good advice about what we must do to save ourselves. Now, all of that, let me just end it off. You know, and I'm, I apologize to you because I, I don't feel like sort of conveyed this strongly enough or, or, or uh, you know, accurately enough. And in fact, I'm going to give you a few minutes afterwards to ask questions if there were things that I <laughs> didn't communicate clearly enough. So if you have questions in your mind, I'm going to ask you now. I'm going to give you time for Q&A, and you're welcome to ask them. But I just want to end off with this little story that I heard that sort of summarizes it to me and, and what the true gospel says our lives should be like. There was a, a story in... in um, so it was somewhere in America, I don't even know where it was, where they were putting on a play. Um, and, you know, there, w there was a, a lady was playing the leading role, and there was another lady playing a supporting role uh, in this play. And they were practicing, and they were rehearsing, and they were, you know, they had their lines down, they practiced everything. Um, but things just weren't happening. The, the, the play wasn't working, and, and the director knew the play was in trouble. 
and, and that it wasn't going to work, it was going to flop miserably. In fact, everyone knew it. And they were all worried and they were all like anxious and like, you know, what are we going to do? You know, it's a couple of days until, you know, the curtain lifts and, and this is not working. And sort of in a stroke of genius, the director decided to swap the leading lady and the, and the supporting actress. Just swap them around. Of course, I mean, they, they were interacting most of the time in the, in the play and they knew one another's lines. And as soon as he made that swap, all of a sudden, Everyone could feel the change. All of a sudden, the play worked. All of a sudden, it started to sing. All of a sudden, there was a buzz and excitement. And what, was happening, what had happened was the, the, the actress who was playing the leading role initially just wasn't a good enough actress to carry the play, to carry the story. Whereas the supporting actress was. And when they swapped them, all of a sudden, things worked. This actually really happened. It's not, it's not a story, not just a parable. It actually really happened. What happened was they took the play, started doing the play, and it was brilliant. They got standing ovations every day. It just worked. And it worked so well that even the leading actress, who was now the, had been demoted to the supporting actress, I had to admit, this, is, <laughs> this other girl, you know, she's, she's, she's good. <laughs> you know? she's, she's making it happen you know, in a way that I just couldn't. And she actually happily stayed the supporting actress, uh, you know, throughout the whole performance uh, and, you know, every, every, you know, months for which that show ran uh, on stage. And it was a great success and a resounding success. And, and that's such a beautiful picture of our lives. We just aren't strong enough to carry the, to be the heroes of our own story, to have the spotlight on us. Our lives cannot afford to be man-centered, us-centered focused on us and at some stage in life and that's what conversion is we have to do a swap where we go from being the leading actor to be part of the supporting cast where jesus is the leading man and then all of a sudden the play works it happens it's beautiful it's powerful And that is the, what the gospel of grace accomplishes. By making much of God, it actually saves us from ourselves. And that's what stuff like other gospels, like the prosperity gospel, cannot do. By making much of us, it actually keeps us in our place of being in bondage. Trying, striving, working hard to make this play happen. When actually, we just can not we need to be saved from the leading role we need jesus to be in the leading role in our lives we need to be the supporting cast that makes him look good that is our salvation that is god's grace that is what's best for us make sense okay any questions <laughs> um good question in other words did, did you all hear that Maybe I should just repeat it for the for the recording. Um, the the question is, you know, surely there are requirements. Um, it's what what do you say? It's by grace that we have been saved, or we have access to. It's by faith, faith that we have access to this grace. Um, yeah, there there are definitely requirements. In other words, and 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 this is why I said I, I know I'm I'm just going to give a partial picture here, and that's why I'm I'm glad for the questions to clarify it. Um, when Paul, the gospel Paul opposes, 
is, is a gospel where they try and add good works. Now, are good works bad? Now, good works like, and law-keeping, like circumcision or, or you know, obeying the law, is that bad? No, it's necessary even, in a sense. But you have to put it in its right place. Same with the prosperity gospel. Are, are there benefits to the gospel? Yes, it's not a true question. <laughs> yes, of course, there are, there are benefits. There are great benefits to the gospel, but, but you have to put the benefits in the, in the, in the right place. Um, so I'm going to ask, answer the question in two parts. So, so the one part is, you know, the wrong view, um, the Roman Catholic view was faith plus works equals salvation. Okay? The Reformed view is faith equals salvation plus works. Can you see the difference? On the one, the works are the root of salvation. On the other one, the, root is, the works is the fruit of salvation. Okay? And, and in other words, in both you have all three the same elements, faith, works, and salvation. But how you order them makes all the difference in the world. If, if you, because this is similar to the other gospel that the, the guys in, in Galatians were accepting. Okay? If you put the works in the wrong place, it actually literally becomes a different gospel. If you make works a prerequisite for salvation, it's a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's not good news. It's good advice. Okay? Um, So to draw that through to your question, on the one hand, yes, by faith you do receive grace. But how do you receive faith? By grace. In other words, um, there are many scriptures that says, um, Romans 12 says, God has given each one of us each of you, and he's talking to the church in, in, in Rome, each of you a measure of faith. Paul talks, or Peter talks about in Second Peter, right at the beginning, he talks about the faith that we have received. By grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, in other words, let me put it like this. Um, if grace is the, is the medicine that saves you, then faith is the syringe by which that medicine is injected into you, in a sense. Okay? So your faith, in a sense, in, in a sense receives grace. It's the, if, it, 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 it's the cause of gr you receiving grace, but it's also the effect of you having received grace. Um, uh, one of the ways in which to see this in James, uh, James chapter 2, I think, it says... Uh, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, it's, uh, it, it, but it starts off that verse by saying He gives more grace. Okay. He resists the proud, and then it says He resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So, if the grace to the humble is the more grace, what is the the word more? Says that there was grace that precedes the grace. So, what was the grace that preceded the more grace? If you receive more grace by being humble, what is the grace that precedes the more grace? The grace that makes you humble. 
You see that? Does that make sense? So, so yes, here's the thing, and this is why God's grace is so amazing. God's grace is a preemptive strike. It creates what it com- commands. In such a way that we cannot take any credit for what we have done. The way Paul puts it is, where's boasting? It's excluded. Right? We have nothing to boast in. If I say, okay, it's my faith that receives grace for the first time, and I wouldn't have received grace unless I had faith, then I can at least boast in my faith. And that is the kind of faith that the prosperity gospel preaches, where it makes faith a work that earns grace. Does that make sense? And can you see how easy it is for us to fall into this trap? You know, I'm no better. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm no better than anyone else. But at least I had the good sense to trust God. <laughs> at least that I can boast in. No. The gospel says even that I can't boast in. Okay, now, okay. I'm, I'm going to answer your question. So, did I answer the question? Okay, any other question? There was a good question. Yes. That's a, that's a good thing. And, and once again, the same principle operates here. When you accept the prosperity gospel, it makes the gifts um, a form of works. Stuff that you must earn. Okay? Now remember, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Okay? Grace does not exclude effort. It doesn't say, okay, everything's by grace, therefore we're not going to work hard or try hard. Okay? In fact, grace produces effort, but grace is very much opposed to earning. And the prosperity gospel makes the gifts something that you have to earn. Okay, let me, let me, let me um, put it this way. You, you have to be holy enough. You have to be good enough. You have to be spiritual enough. You have to be whatever enough to have the gifts. Okay? W- what is the word used in Galatians, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 and elsewhere in the Bible, to describe the gifts. Does anyone know the, the Greek word? Charismata. You've heard that word, right? Charismata. What does the word charismata mean? The word charis means grace. That's the Greek word for grace. Charismata is the word for grace gifts. Can you see where this is going? Okay. In other words, the gifts are not something you earn, because if you have to earn them, they're not gifts. My brother had his birthday yesterday, turned 44, okay? And I gave him a book and a builder's warehouse voucher because <laughs> he's a handyman and he likes that kind of thing. Did he have to earn it? Did he have to earn those gifts? No, when you have to earn it, it's no longer a gift. A gift is freely given. And, and in fact, in the Greek, it's even more clear through the word charismata, which is so strongly related to, to grace. Okay, so to answer your question... It bases, if, if, if you base your understanding of the gifts on the prosperity gospel, it makes even the gift something that you have to earn, and then you make it something that you can boast in. Okay? Because I earned it, because I'm more spiritual, because I have more faith, because I have whatever I think I need to earn the right to be used by God in these gifts, I can boast in it. I'm so good. But where is, as if you understand it according to the true gospel, where it's is a charismata where it's a grace gift. You don't have to earn it. 
I mean, why do you think Paul has to write to the Corinthian church, who clearly are so messed up, they're not very holy, they're not very obedient, they're not very spiritual. In fact, he says so in so many words. <laughs> you know, you guys are not very spiritual. And yet, he says it right at the beginning of the, of, the, of, of the letter, you abound in every gift. He's not trying to get them to flow in the gifts. They're already flowing in the gifts. What he's trying to get them to do is, he's trying to correct them and saying, you know, use the gifts in the right order because you messed up. You're using it for all the wrong reasons, selfish reasons, not in love. And you're using it, you know, to try and, Get a one-upmanship of, I'm more spiritual than you because I have certain gifts that you don't have, etc., etc., etc. That is exactly the problem that the prosperity gospel creates. It creates an attitude where you think you have to earn the gifts, and, and because you think you've earned them, you then boast in them when you do have them. Okay? Whereas if you have the real gospel, number one... You don't think you have to earn them. You, you recognize them for the grace gift that they are, number one. Number two, when you do get used by God through those gifts, you glorify God, not yourself. You say, it, it, I didn't earn this. It was a gift. It doesn't reflect my, my, how good or how great or how deserving I am. It, it, it reflects how good God is, and you glorify God for it. And thirdly, it frees you to not be mercenary in your use of the gifts. but to do it really out of love, as 1 Corinthians 13 says. And that's why it's placed between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, because that's the motive for using the gifts. So even, to answer, I hope that answers your question, but my point is, if you accept the prosperity gospel, by God's grace, the gifts will still manifest, but there's going to be some really bad leaven going with it, some really bad motives going with it, and some really bad things happening. Whereas you operate the gifts out of the true gospel, it's going to be more powerful. You're probably going to see the gifts more, manifesting more, more regularly, but also more purely, more out of love and bringing more glory to God. Because the focus is going to be less on the person operating the gifts and more on the God who through grace gives the gift, charismata. Does, does that make sense? Yes, yes, because it's grace and because we understand it's grace. Um, I wish I could go into this in more detail, but I, I don't want to take too much time. Another thing that the prosperity gospel does, just specific, because you're asking now specifically in healing, is it, it sets up healing in such a way that when someone doesn't get healed, if you're honest and consistent, then you have to say you didn't get healed because you didn't have enough faith. It makes that the only option for why someone didn't get healed, okay? And then it adds, you know, insult to injury and, and so on, whereas the gospel says, no, it's by grace, okay? So even the receiving the healing, the prosperity gospel makes it a work, where the true gospel makes it a gift. Yeah. I would, I would say that. In other words, um, there's, a, there's a resting in God's wisdom in terms of how to do things. Um, and, and there's, you know, grace cannot be earned. So there are two sides um, to that. Um, on the one hand, there's, there's the side of 
um, you know, I'm not working for it. Um, so there's not that heaviness of having to work and strive and, and earn it. But on the other side, on the flip side, there's also not the entitlement to it. Uh, Stefan and I, uh, uh, the uh, beginning of last year, that he preached that sermon on entitlement? August 2017 ish. Okay. <laughs> go, go, go and listen to Go and listen to that because I really think Stefan was really hearing from the Lord. Because one of the greatest things that the prosperity gospel produces is entitlement. And, and Stefan was discerning that thing and, and right there attacking it and saying, listen, there is no grounds, no grounds whatsoever for entitlement in the Christian life. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, what Lauren is saying here is, is how do you not go into a victim mentality? And, and what I'm saying, and, and, and remember, and th that's why I was, I was worried, you know, when I, when I started preaching this sermon, because I was only addressing one side. So just to give you the fuller picture, okay, yeah, let me draw this. Um, here, on the one sa side, let's put it on this side, you have the um, prosperity gospel. Yeah, on the other side, you have the poverty gospel. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, don't think that because I didn't mention this one in the sermon that I don't think it's there, okay? The true gospel is here. So, in other words, don't just see what I've presented as the true gospel versus the prosperity gospel. The true gospel is a third option. It's not a second option. It's not a second alternative. Because you get the, pro the poverty gospel where it, where it says basically salvation through poverty, through suffering. My suffering. So, in other words, instead of putting works here, it puts suffering here. Faith plus suffering equals salvation. It's just as wrong as the prosperity gospel. It's the polar opposite, but it's just as wrong. And almost all the things that you can say is wrong with the prosperity gospel, you can on the other opposite say is wrong with the poverty gospel. Because the poverty gospel is also man-centered. If it's my faith plus my suffering that produces my salvation, it's still me-centered. It's still me doing the work, and it's therefore still me getting the glory, and, oh, I suffer so well. <laughs> you know, I'm such a martyr. You know, woe is me. <laughs> it's the same pride. It just looks different, but it's the same thing. Okay? So, in other words, what Lauren is saying is don't in your... We should not make the mistake of... And, and that's why I'm so glad you asked this question. We should not make our mista the mistake of in, in order to avoid the prosperity gospel, move all the way over and make the pendulum swing to the poverty gospel. Okay? The true gospel is not the poverty gospel. And it's not the prosperity gospel. It's a third option. Okay? Which... Does not, where, you, where your suffering doesn't save you, but where your works doesn't sa don't save you either. Okay. L does that clarify things and bring a bit more perspective? Thanks for that question. Yes. Tom is asking um, justification and sanctification. Your justification determines your eternity. You know, your, your, uh, your, where you uh, do you end up in heaven? Now she's asking, but does sanctification as well? Now, one of the mistakes that the 
prosperity gospel makes, and the poverty gospel for that matter, is it bases, it bases your justification or your sense of your justification on your sanctification. Whereas the true gospel flips it around and says, no, my sanctification is dependent on my justification. In other words, I am going to live more like Jesus because he's already saved me and I'm already loved. And when I realize how loved and accepted I am, and my heart is literally changed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, I'm not just declared righteous before God, justified, just as if I had not sinned. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. So I'm standing, justification is a legal term in, in one sense. So in the one sense, um, it says I'm standing before God as judge, and he, because of Jesus, he gives a favorable judgment. So on the one hand, he finds me guilty, but then he walks off the bench as the judge and comes and stands next to me as the, the defense attorney. And he says, no, but that judgment that, that you deserve, I'll take. And therefore, I now declare you justified. I'm condemned so that you can be justified. But the interesting thing, thing about the word um, in the Greek, dikaiosune, um, it doesn't just mean justification. It also means, sanct- it also means righteousness or made righteous righteousness so when we are justified on the one hand we are declared innocent but it's more than that we are literally made righteous that's why we get born again our our hearts literally change heart of flesh for a heart of stone we're given a heart that actually wants to please god we're given a heart that actually desires to please god so your with you in a sense your your sanctification doesn't determine whether you go to heaven or not but if you are truly justified, you will be sanctified because you'd want to. Now, now, here's why. Because if you're truly a Christian, your heart has really been changed and you really want to please God. Even though you still have a sinful nature, that you struggle with the old man. And you're, still, you're putting off the old man and putting on the new man. But it's a process, right? You can still sin. But you can no longer sin in peace. You can still sin. But you can no longer enjoy your sin like you used to. Right? So, in that sense, God doesn't just start saving us, but He continues to save us. And the good work, according to Philippians 1 verse 6, that he, com- that he started, He will complete even to the coming of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is good news. Father, we thank You, Lord, that Your gospel is really good news better than we want to make it. And Lord, Lord, even as we're just starting this conversation about what is the true gospel and what are false gospels, we pray, Lord God, that you'll reveal to us, that that we'll be able to study the real deal, the original, so well that we'll be able to recognize counterfeits when they come along. Lord, we don't want to believe in a false gospel. We don't want to believe in another gospel, which is actually no gospel at all. We want to believe in the true gospel, and we pray that you'll help us to do that Holy Spirit. We pray that we'll be a community that is so saturated in the true gospel that we are quick to reject all counterfeits and all people who come to trouble us by perverting and twisting the gospel. And we pray that you will with time help us to get the balance right, to reject both the prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel and believe the true gospel and be a community that puts it on display. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for your patience. God bless you.
Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.